the collective nightmares podcast we are sociologists who talk horror my name is marshall smith i'm one of the co-hosts every week we pick a particular horror film and we dig into it from a sociological cultural criticism perspective we consider the different ways it can be read all the different kinds of representations all that sort of thing and we do that under the idea that our horror, the horror films that are popular and resonate within a society can be revealing as to other factors and, and things going on within that culture. And I'm Laura Patterson. Marshall and I both have our PhDs in sociology from the University of Colorado at Boulder. And horror films are great for reflecting what societal fears are and what societal biases are at any given time in history. And as was the case in this film, taking me back to my high school years and really just shocking me (laughs) with the the awfulness of the culture that I was immersed in and entirely blinded to, or yeah, entirely blinded to, because I loved the film the first time around in high school. And on subsequent viewing, I will say it did not hold up for me. (laughs) And meanwhile, I've been watching it regularly for the last 25 years, 26, I guess now. And that film is Seven, the David Fincher film from 1995, starring uh, Morgan Freeman and Brad Pitt. The synopsis from IMDb is, two detectives, a rookie and a veteran, hunt a serial killer who uses the seven deadly sins as his motives. Way to go, whoever wrote that. And it isn't like a total spoiler-laden just disaster of a summary. I just listened to another episode where, so I think it was Insidious where this, the synopsis and IMDb is like super spoiler. Anyway. Uh, so yeah, we're, this is part three ish. Three, 3.1, 3.2, 3.3. <laughs> <laughs> of a impromptu mini series on serial killer films specifically that subgenre, you're welcome to just jump in and join us. But this is part of a larger conversation. So if you enjoy this or you want to jump back and start, start with uh, Henry was really our first of this particular subgenre, Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. So you can check out that episode as well as all of our back catalog of episodes are available for free on our website, collectivenightmares.com. Find us on Spotify or iTunes or wherever. Review us, rate us, subscribe, whatever you can do to help us out, help us promote. If you enjoy this, by all means, please do. And our Instagram is at Collective Nightmares. You can reach out to us there. We run that ourselves. Is there anything else I need to say? Spoilers. Oh, thank you. Spoilers. Yes, this film, we every episode is built around the one specific film. And there will be spoilers for that film in this case seven throughout the episode 
by all means, if you haven't watched the film before you listen, we want to give you a chance to go check that out and have that unspoiled viewing experience. And there were spoilers for my friend Dahmer. Uh, no, no, yeah, there were (laughs) because there were. If you don't want to know the whole trajectory of the film before you watch it, uh, right? Yes, that's true. Yes, some for the Ted Bundy film, shockingly evil, a little, uh, yes, right, 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 a little Um, for Summer of Sam, uh, right, right, right. Uh, maybe even just a little mild, little tiny bit of a uh, spoiler of Henry. Barely, yeah. Barely, barely. Yeah. Just- yeah. And shocker, you talked about. Yeah, a shocker too. A little. So an additional historical sin is the concept of acedia, which is the neglect to take care of something that one should do. So you can join us for our discussion of my acedia with regard to (laughs) my enjoyment of viewing seven for the last 26 years it's the nerdiest podcast intro you'll ever hear (laughs) i like it i like it marshall so what movie are we talking about today i don't know laura i like the idea i hope we're talking seven because i have a ton of notes from seven oh that's good I still, I think we ought to do the lightning round of the other films just so we get something out of it. And then, sure, let's talk about Seven. So you didn't just watch Seven again, or did you? Yeah, I, well, I just watched the first, like, 45 minutes. Okay, okay. But, like I said, I have... You, you don't want to do a lightning round first? Well, I kind of do, but I'm honestly, I'm super intrigued by Seven because I thought it was a train wreck. And you love it and that sounds more fun to talk about that's why it's a lightning round we're not just gonna spend an hour on each of these movies okay i guess so okay i have my notes so i can remember things all right here we'll do how many minutes do you want to devote to each film maybe we should do them at the end you don't want to do them at the end no i don't don't know quickly so that we can talk about seven why don't we do them quickly now we get them out of the way (laughs) 90 seconds. I don't know. 90? You, are you ready to do 90 or less? No, that's unrealistic. Yes, I guess. So we're going to do a lightning round because we watched a number of movies in our hope, which were supposed to be, or we, we had hoped to be our uh, next episode in our serial killer subgenre impromptu miniseries. And we punted on all of them let's actually i know what i want to start with this is to segue from our last episode which was shockingly vile and whatever what is it called repugnantly evil <laughs> something yes god damn it what is it called shockingly our, our last episode extremely wicked shockingly evil and vile about bundy Based on a book, we had lots of complaints because the movie was supposed to be about or is based on a book by his ex-girlfriend and then the movie wasn't about her. So I tracked down a copy of the book. I mean, it's not hard because it's, you know, they made a movie and apparently a miniseries on it. So, but literally the first thing she says in the introduction is 
In May 2017, I learned via the internet that a new Ted Bundy movie was being made and the story was going to be told from the perspective of Bundy's longtime girlfriend. I did a quick internet search and got 21,000 hits all announcing the news about, quote, my story, unquote, being told in a new Ted Bundy movie. I was stunned. How could they tell my story without ever speaking with me? And that fits right in to what we had, our complaints were, which I just kind of recapped was, biggest complaint was the unethical decision to take a story that was supposed to be about his girlfriend and all that meant and just make it about 10 buddy again. And she does say later in this introduction, this introduction to the updated edition of the Phantom Prince, my life with Ted Bundy by Elizabeth Kendall. After getting off on the wrong foot, initially the collaboration we had with the film was a good one. We were happy to find out we being her and her daughter. We were happy to find that director Joe Berlinger respected and acted upon our input Everyone associated with the production was kind and treated us well. We were able to face our fears and watch the finished films. It was well-directed and well-acted. We were left with the feeling that Zac Efron and Lily Collins got it right. Even so, during the filmmaking process, we realized that with the dramatization of a true story, things must be omitted, condensed, or combined to help the story fit within time constraints. Molly and I decided that it was essential that we tell our story in our own words as we experienced it, which is why we decided to issue the second edition of The Phantom Prince. So, you know, she says there, hey, they actually treated us well and they heard our input. They thought it was fine. I I don't want to overstep her feeling, but I, I just want to say that I still stand by our assessment that what they did was really take a story that could have been told a million different ways and picked a couple of the least good ways to actually tell that story. So there's first... Well, I, I want to say I agree with that. And also, after we watched Shockingly Evil, what is it, Extremely Wicked, whatever, after we watched the Ted Bundy film, I watched on Netflix a Ted Bundy documentary, which I partly was frustrated with myself for doing because we had just finished the podcast about how terrible it was that this film focused on his story and made him seem like the interesting part, even when it was supposed to be a film about her. And one of the first things I did then after we finished our podcast was go and uh, watch a documentary on Ted Bundy, because after seeing that film, I was curious about Ted Bundy and this documentary. Was the film called Ted Bundy Falling for a Killer? Um, I don't think so. I want to say it was like Ted Bundy tapes or something. It's a Netflix apparently documentary, that, sort of. Apparently this book was also the inspiration for that miniseries. That's all. Go ahead. Sorry. Okay, no. It was a documentary on Netflix. I have only seen two of the four parts. I will probably watch the other two because it was actually really pretty interesting and an interesting time capsule of that time period, like in the 70s when this was happening. But watching the film, first of all, he totally did it. <laughs> like, I know there was some question after watching Shockingly Evil as to whether he had actually done it because the film didn't actually present him as guilty necessarily. And I left legitimately with questions about what, what had it happened and was he, could he have not been the killer? So no, the documentary, like unequivocally, he was the killer, which was nice to see, I guess. Was but also something that was really, really interesting that I just want to bring up about this documentary, which like I said, I'm two episodes in and so far I really like it, is that they interview a newscaster from Denver, pretty sure it was from Denver, and he says that he's pretty sure that he's the person who coined the term serial killer. 
And so back in the seventies, he said that there were, I'm not saying he necessarily was, but he was saying that there were a lot of, um, a lot of the serial killers like son of Sam and the hillside strangler and Gacy and Dahmer and Ted Bundy. And there was just a sort of a slew of them all happening around the same time period. And he said, as far as he knew that he was the first person who had called it serial killing and whatever, and that term took off. But I just thought if that is true, that there was a preponderance of serial killers in the mid to late seventies, which I Googled serial killers, like a Wikipedia list to try to check the dates. And I just scanning down the list, it looked like that was true. I didn't, I would like to have actually like gone in Excel and figured out the numbers just to see if it was like my own bias from having heard this, that maybe influenced that. But there did seem to be a whole heck of a lot around that time period. And I, they made the argument, or he maybe made the argument in this documentary that, you know, there was something going on in our culture at that time that was propelling relatively affluent white men in particular to go out and kill young women. And first of all, that as sociologists is an interesting question. And so I wanted to know if that's actually true, that there was a a spike in serial killings around that time period. And like I said, a, a quick Wikipedia search seemed to indicate that may be the case. But also I thought it was really, really interesting societally speaking, when we talk about slasher films and their, you know, popularity in say the early eighties coming on the wave of what at least this person was arguing was this, this, uh, frequent in the news anyway, onslaught of serial killers as a a new, new newish, whatever thing that was happening. I mean, I'm not saying it was new necessarily, but presented to society as new and something that people were becoming aware of. And there was a lot of fear around that. And there was a lot of fear of particularly young women about being, you know, hurt by this crazy serial killer that that might play into some of what was going on with slasher films and their popularity in that subsequent time period. And that's just something I had never thought of either of those two things. I didn't know that, you know, whether this guy is right or not, that he coined the term serial killer. I didn't know that serial killers weren't, that wasn't a a commonly recognized thing in American culture until that time period. And I also didn't realize that that immediately preceded slasher films. So again, I won't stand behind those. I haven't done a ton of research on either of those claims, but I just wanted to raise it because they're interesting things to think about. That is totally interesting. I'm glad you said that. That's something I have not put together before. And my, I think regardless of whether or not there was some sort of spike in serial killers, if there was spike in media attention, towards them, it would have accomplished the same effect. We know that from Glasner's culture of fear, which we talked about with uh, Nightcrawler. So that is, that's totally interesting. If you're into that kind of thing, I will totally recommend a four-part miniseries called The Ripper that is about a, a serial killer that was operating in the north of England in the late 70s, early 80s. And in particular, the third episode is wonderfully sociological because they the restrictions imposed by the police and the government in response to this serial killer targeting young women at least according to this documentary directly leads to pushing women into like take back the night public demonstrations of we should not be restricted because this man is killing women if you want to restrict someone, do that. Uh, there's a whole lot more. They attributed the, they called the victims sex workers when they weren't. It was like, it's funny if you watch the documentary, it's like 95% of the police are, are men 
And because of that and their men, their men's privilege, they totally misjudge a bunch of evidence and ignore a bunch of things. And like, so I'll just say that. And then Laura is the documentary you watched conversations with a killer, the Ted Bundy tapes. Yes, that was it. Okay. Yeah. So I asked that because the same person who directed shockingly evil and vile created that miniseries. <laughs> oh, really? So Interesting. I don't, I don't know what that means, but it's just like, okay. Uh, okay. All right. And then we watched, uh, are we good on that? Try to push the lightning here. Is that yes? Can we move forward? Dahmer. Then my friend Dahmer, which you watched. I, I got the halfway through it and I was like, I'm not watching this. Yeah, I can give my take in like 30 seconds and then obviously jump in if you want to. Dahmer is from the perspective of one of his friends in high school. And it's like basically just this little window of his life when he knew him, except the focus was still on Dahmer, not on the friend. And the whole film is like everything that leads up to Dahmer getting in, pulling his first victim into his car which I called once I figured that out. I was like, I said, halfway through right when he starts, he tries to call the vice president. I was like, well, this is going to end. We're not going to get anywhere. And so once I figured that out and I skipped forward and saw that, I was like, well, I'm not watching the rest of this. Cause they were, it was very like a lot of the same really ethical problems. I thought it presented Dahmer as very sympathetic as very misunderstood. And the guys were such a bunch of assholes to everybody anyway, their whole, like, we're going to, I'm going to pretend to have a seizure, pretend I'm mentally ill, and that's going to be our joke and our, we're going to harass women with it. But it, all that to me was presented as though somehow we should feel bad for him or something. And I'm like, all he's doing is being terrible and his friends are encouraging him and somehow, and everything else is just totally mundane and boring. I couldn't care less. I, I was like, it was just a tedious just ugh, couldn't care less. So I had less of a negative reaction to it. I mean, some of what you're saying, I agree with, but I did think that the presentation of him as a, to some extent, product of society is an okay argument. I mean, I think they highlighted his struggles with homosexuality in that time period. And, you know, there were, there were elements there that I don't think we need to entirely discount. Like, I don't think we need to entirely demonize him in order to tell his story. I think it's okay to say there are societal influences or there could be whatever, there could be things that acted on his life that helped push him in the direction that he went. And again, I would say from a sociological perspective, that some element of behavior is induced by the culture that you're born into and how you're treated in various ways and whatever. I, I didn't have a problem with that, but it was all about balance, right? It's like, it felt like it leaned too far in that direction. Like that, that argument, I don't think needed to be absent because I actually think that could be a good contribution. And, and I don't feel the need to treat him the way that I was going to say, Ted, that's not who I mean, uh, Henry, that Henry was treated, right? Where Henry was just evil and there's no point in trying to understand him. There's no point in trying to understand where he came from because he's just evil. I appreciated that Dahmer didn't do that, but I, I thought that was okay too. He could be a product of society to some extent, but that can't be the only argument you're making. And that it felt to me like, again, his, his, there was too much empathy because it was all drama about, 
you know, his, his childhood and his upbringing and how sad that was and how mistreated he was. And again, that that's okay. It's just don't only tell that story. So I, I think it was unbalanced, but I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't dismiss it quite as much as you did. One rebuttal. We do hear Henry's background. His mom was a sex worker. She made him watch. She abused him. We get that. And part B is, I agree with you. It's all balance. It's all presentation. All that is fine. Except for the fact that with Dahmer, (laughs) I don't, you know, I don't want to minimize anybody's struggle, but like the shit that he dealt with was not like my mom's a sex worker who makes me watch and beats me and abuses me and has brings people in who are abusive and poverty. He's in a suburban middle-class home. Yeah. He gets bullied and he's weird, but, and his parents bicker, but like, fuck off. Like that's not, Oh, we're going to excuse him becoming a serial killer. How many millions of, of people in those situations and worse didn't go on to be an asshole or res- decide that my social strategy is going to be mocking disabled people because I'm a terrible person. Like I, I just, I'm going to push back a little bit there. Otherwise, sure. And, and also I think they highlighted his sexual orientation and his struggle around that somewhat too. So that, that would be my, my pushback to your pushback, but okay. in general, I don't think we're that far off. Yeah, no, I don't either. Uh, okay. And then we did summer of Sam, which is about Berkowitz, David Berkowitz in New York city, which Spike Lee joint which I kind of advocated for because was like, oh, that'd be interesting. Let's do it from a black filmmaker. By far the most interesting part of the two and a half hour Summer of Sam was the pieces where Spike Lee contrasted what how that it was impacting the white communities or the Italian communities versus how it was impacting the black communities. And he was going to the black communities and, and saying... And they were saying, well, I'm glad that it wasn't happening here because if it was, the police would be near killing people and beating people down and everything else. And the brownouts and the, and the power outages for the heat wave led to all kinds of chaos and desperation from the poverty and bed, bed and, and Bronx and um, these other black neighborhoods and these more affluent, I mean, they were working class, but working class in the late seventies was like middle-class now and the xenophobia of these super toxic hegemonic masculine. If you do your hair a little weird, or if you are gay, or if you're interested in sex other than the missionary position or whatever, it's just, you're suspected to be a serial killer. Uh, even still, it, I mean, I haven't watched a Spike Lee movie in, I don't even know how long. Obviously, I watched Do the Right Thing a couple of times. I've seen School Days. I saw Crooklyn. I was on board with Spike Lee for a while. But this movie, well, what? I got to tell you, I remember why I haven't rewatched it. And that was somebody get Spike an editor. <laughs> I, I saw no reason why Summer of Sam couldn't have been an hour and a half instead of two and a half hours. Your thoughts? That's my top issues. I enjoyed Summer of Sam. And I felt like there was something, there were some emotional ties going on in the background that I found interesting about the stories that they were telling. And I I can't hundred percent put my finger on that or tie that all together right now, but I just thought there was something about the, I don't know, the contrast and like the different types of behaviors that people were engaging in and what was being seen as wrong or wasn't being seen as wrong. And the piece of that, that I found to be a bit strange was that 
Sam Berkowitz seemed crazier in a way where I couldn't tell what was driving him. And so it was sort of odd to have his character be driven by something that I didn't really understand. Like I couldn't, I couldn't get a handle on his drive, but then the other main characters all seemed to be following drives of some kind. And so there was, there was something emotional there that actually kept me interested throughout. And I don't feel like the message really came together for me at the end, but I was, I was engaged and I liked the stories and I I found it interesting. And I, I did feel like it worked, but it worked more as a snapshot of that summer with some interesting artistic and emotional elements going on more so than it did certainly a story about Berkowitz, but even a story about anything. I don't know. It felt more like a a story about the time period to me. Absolutely. Yes. That was, I think the key reason we decided not to do the episode on it is it was absolutely a story about the time period. Yeah. That's the best way to say it or what you just did. Yeah. And then I watched shocker Wes Craven's film (sighs) with, (laughs) Which I'll, I'll just preface by saying Wes Craven's my favorite favorite horror director. I will give Wes a lot of a lot of rope, a lot of leniency, and uh, the movie's a mess. There's some interesting pieces in there. I think he was really trying to recapture some of the magic he got with Nightmare on Elm Street. I would love to speculate about how much of that was his idea and how much of that was pushed by the studio, or maybe it was both there's some interesting ideas with commentary on the impact of television and corruption, corrupting media. And uh, there were also some interesting kind of nuggets about for, at least within our discussion of the balancing technology and empiricism and rationality versus like spirituality and irrationality and like the mystical. And, but that's where I told Laura, I don't think we should do shocker one. Cause it was another two hour movie. And it would have really only been interesting for our conversation exclusively as at that level. It would have it would have been a subgenre, Wes Craven's career stepping stone. In that context, there were some interesting things, but the movie itself was it was it was kind of a mess. And the last hour of the film, if not more, is basically one big long chase scene. And I was like, I don't think I can subject to Laura to that. <laughs> uh, it really is. Like, it's, it, 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 there, there are some people under the stairs mojo happening there. So that, that's my take on Shocker. And that all brought us to desperation of, or the desperation of going back to one of my absolute favorite films, which is where I think this is going to get really interesting in this discussion which is David Fincher's Seven. And I didn't rewatch it in entirety right before, but I will say, I know I watched it seven times in the theaters because I remember that once I had had gone and watched it like four or five, I was like, well, it's called Seven. I might as well see it Seven. And then since then, 2005, Jesus Christ, it's been 25 years since I came out. That's depressing. Also, we're so old. (laughs) That was was one of the first most depressing things about watching that movie was, oh, my gosh, seeing Brad Pitt as a baby. Uh, And uh, I'd say to Laura, I'm sure I've watched it 50 times, if not more, probably more, probably closer to 100. So I'm going to do this off off of that experience. And given your intro that seven, you thought was a disaster. Great. Let's. uh, Let's kill my kill my darlings. <laughs> I feel so badly about that. That's okay. 
I do. It was a mess. It was an absolute mess, ideologically speaking. And I mean, do you want me to just jump in? Do you want to start with something more positive? <laughs> I, I have an idea of where you're going with this, and that's all fine. Why don't you start there? The idea of where you're going to go with this? Yeah, I'm curious. I have like five uh, different points that really bother me. Well, I'm sure gender is going to be a disaster, which it is. I mean, it's it's very mid-90s in the sense that it's a movie about men, by men, for men. Women at best are incidental sexy lamps or not even sexy lamps, just props. I guess that's what that there's a sexy list lamp test sort of like the Bechtel test that I don't know who came up with that, but the idea of, could you replace that woman with a sexy lamp and assuming lamps can get pregnant. Gwyneth is a lamp. And uh, the only other okay, well, woman yeah, in the entire thing is the wife of Elliot Gould, right? Who all she does is sob hysterically and say this painting's upside down. So yeah, I mean, that would be my top, I'm sure is where, where, where you're going to say or what you're going to say. But yeah, let, let's start there for sure. And because I just watched it and took notes on it, I can okay. go through a little more detail on that line. But absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I mean, oh, oh God, it was just painful. It was so painful. So like when starting with Morgan Freeman being on the phone with Gwyneth Paltrow and like the whole cliche, like, oh, no, no, I'm busy. Well, Okay. Okay, I guess I'm coming over to your house for dinner tonight. <laughs> like, her only contribution to anything ever was relationship talk. I mean, she invited him over for dinner. They get there and she talks to him about whether he's ever been married and she cooks. And then she meets up with him later on to talk about her relationship and possible baby status. And that's it. She's That's her entire contribution to the story, except that she and the woman who gets killed by the whatever the knife dildo are there to serve as props and reprimands in the man's story. And so, you know, this is a common problem that we see throughout these films, but it was really highlighted in seven that the women, their deaths had no impact whatsoever in terms of their own character. We didn't care. They were there completely as an accessory to tell the story of the men. And yes, it was a, completely a story about men, but I mean, I, I could not get over the scene I'm moving away from Gwyneth for a second here, but the scene where the man who killed the woman with the knife dildo in that scene, he's crying, he's wrapped in a towel. He's, you know, he's so shaken up by what was done to him. And that scene was just entirely driven around his experience. And I'm sure that was a very terrible experience. I'm sure, you know, being forced at gunpoint to whatever, like, I'm not saying he had a good day, but we didn't even need to meet the woman, see her. We saw the image of the, impediment, whatever you want to call it. You know, we saw that, I think, in a somewhat gawking kind of way, um, which is maybe a good tangent to the the next argument I want to make, which is that all of the violence around this was, I think, glorified. And we as an audience were meant to gawk at it and enjoy it, not feel it as pain ever. But I mean, in that in that instance, with regard to gender, it was so brutally obvious that, again, it was all about him. And, and there was just no All you were meant to think, I think if you thought about her experience, you were meant to be a little bit like, ooh, look at that thing. That was this character we never met's role. And Gwyneth then, I mean, to have it bookended at the end of the film by her just getting her head cut off, apparently to help tell 
Kevin Spacey's story and to help tell Brad Pitt's story. And she didn't matter. She didn't matter enough to see it. She didn't matter enough to have any sort of impact. She was completely an accessory. And that was really problematic. See, like 95% of the people I've ever talked about this film think it was her head in the box. And I always thought it was a fetus. You thought it was what? The fetus. Oh, I assumed it was her head. I guess I, it, you would, like I said, like 95, the vast overwhelming majority. Cause then I thought it was like, well, cause otherwise he would have known she was pregnant. Anyway. Also, now that you say that I'm thinking that the women victims for the, the sins, even how they were presented was sexist because let's see pride and lust, right? She's a sex worker and her, the woman is a model. So beauty and sex there, that's all, that's it. The lawyer at least is who greed is. I mean, he's like you said, we get a little bit of something about, well, it's not sex anyway. I mean, he's so the sloth is sex. Cause he's a pederast, but in like a drug dealer and just like, wait, wait can I stop you for one second? Cause yeah, where you're going, I think is really good. I just, I want to get back to the, the two, the oh, two the, women victims sure, for a please. second, because yeah, when they were, when Kevin Spacey was talking about them in the car, I took notes on that as well. And he made comments about uh, the one, right. The one was a, a whore he said. And so she is, you know, she's obviously, worthy of this, whatever, you know, what she got. And the other one was so ugly inside that she wouldn't want to go on living if she weren't beautiful. And both of those things, I was like, have you heard about social structure? Like, has that even crossed your mind? Like, like these two women deserve to die because one of them, what, you know, thinks her beauty is so important. Well, like, look at the society we live in. How is that her fault? That's right. We should kill her. And she's the evil one for like, just all this messaging that is getting thrown at us, including the messaging of this film. All this film told us is that all women are worth is that they can be pretty and talk about babies or something. And then they die and nobody cares. That's, that's exactly the problem. Like this, the, I kept coming up to this point in this film where I was like, Oh my gosh, it's a meta problem about itself. And this is not the only place I'm going to make this argument, but it was just so, it's such a problem. And I mean, Leah, it's just, Oh, she's a whore. Social structure. That's all. Okay. And then go on. You can talk about the, the male victims as well, because where you were going with that was good too. It just didn't seem to be that it was reduced to, like you said, the, can I articulate that? I don't know. Maybe just that the gender, the, the women are, yeah, it's you're, you're sexually agentic and you're worried about your appearance. Gluttony, his appearance is commented actually as a point of contrast when he when Brad Pitt's comments on how bad the the first victim looks in the autopsy room, Morgan Re- Freeman's like, "Oh, come on, have some respect for the dead," or whatever he says. And I mean, we don't know anything about him, but again, it just wasn't. And then greed, like I said, is is there? There's some. It's not related to sexuality. It's not related to opinion. It's it's. And he was a hugely, highly successful. I suppose the model was successful too, but it just was about their character. <laughs> in a way that was, I, 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 I'm not articulating this well, Laura. Do you hear what I'm saying though? I mean, the sloth, the, the, the yeah. pederast is still pederast and that's still sexuality. And then who's, oh, and then wrath and envy. I'll, Go ahead. I, I feel like on each of these fronts, yeah, I'd just like to give a little bit more depth to what you're saying. Cause I think you're on the right track, certainly. 
with the discussion, especially at the end of the discussion of the gluttony one, although, I mean, this was a case throughout. I mean, it was a case when we were in the room with that scene, but also at the end of the film, Kevin Spacey's description of that man was just brutally painful. And I thought if you were someone who is overweight and feels self-conscious about this in our society, which that messaging is all over the place, what he said was just so hurtful and it wasn't chastised. I mean, the film, I won't say the film elevated him necessarily. I mean, to some extent it did, but it was not chastised. And I mean, he goes into this long thing at the end of the film about how that man was just, you know, he ate so much and he was so, I don't know what, what something like if you were out and you saw him somewhere, you wouldn't even be able to finish your meal because he would just make you so sick looking at him and how disgusting and how horrible. And it was, brutally painful and it just wasn't it wasn't justified and it was like you said it was it was surface it was entirely lacking it's just it was painful it was painful and hurtful as were I think the depictions of both of the women I think the the man you know you were talking about the sort of sexuality component with the pedophile and there was also the scene where was where they're pursuing his killing and they go down into the whatever sex shop area or whatever, you know, part of town where they're trying to see what's going on here. And they meet the guy at the sex shop who they start interviewing. And I was really curious what they were going to do with him because I thought, Oh, I think based on how this film is characterizing everything so far that he's going to end up in the bad box. He's got to, he's got to have markers that he's wrong because this film really is supporting a lot of the arguments that I think Kevin Spacey is making to some extent, certainly not combating them. And in a lot of ways, supporting them. And he absolutely was, he was, you know, it was subtle at first. I was like looking for something more obvious other than the guy just sort of looking shielded and kind of like not really engaging. And there, there were, there were like not compelling elements to his personality, but then Brad Pitt explicitly says to him, do you like your job? And he says it in this way that's like very demeaning to what the guy's doing. And the guy says, no, but, you know, not everybody gets to like their job or something along those lines. And I just thought like, right, like he had to be demonized by the film. The film couldn't let it go. They could not let sexuality go. And so I don't know, on all these levels, I think it was carrying on the messaging that Kevin Spacey was trying to deliver. Can I get to the meta piece of that too? Or do you want to jump in there? Uh, Let me just make sure I understand what you're saying, which is that if what Kevin Spacey is saying is he is doing this because he is trying to get people to be angrier or be more concerned about all of these sins and not looking the other way, he chose these particular ones. That's the whole piece that Freeman exposits is that a word uh does exposition where he says you know these were used to preach so he's preaching with the with the sins himself so we get that and tell me again you don't like that because maybe where i wanted to go with that next i'll tie right back to your question and i think fill this in a little bit if it doesn't then let me know but okay so in contrast to henry i promise this isn't a huge tangent (laughs) i think it'll come back around but in contrast to henry where we were explicitly told by the film that Henry wasn't interesting. He wasn't glamorous. And whatever time we spent with him, we were chastised for as viewers for caring or being drawn to him or wanting that. In this case, our killer absolutely was 
glamorized. And I would say that in some ways, just even visually, he was wearing red. He would, there were all these scenes focusing on him. The final culmination of the film is a culmination of his story. He gets to lead it. The only way he's going to let the film end is if the two cops will come with him and let him kind of do his thing. While they're in the car driving to the final scene, Brad Pitt says something like, what was, I think I might've even written it down. And it was something about like, tell us who you are or something like that. I guess the exact words aren't that important, but something along those lines of, you know, so tell us who you are, tell us what's going on with you. And I thought this is the exact opposite. The whole film is, is a presentation of what's going on in this guy's mind, right? Even when they're sitting there reading his journal books in his room and, you know, they're very interested in what he's doing and what messaging he's trying to get across. And Brad Pitt tries to make this argument to Kevin Spacey in the car on the way out to the final scene, like, oh, nobody cares or nobody is that interested in what you're saying, or you're going to be, you're going to be old news like tomorrow. And Kevin Spacey says like, no, I'm not, you know, everybody's, everybody's interested in this. Everybody's going to care about this. And I thought Kevin Spacey's right because that's what this film is doing, right? The whole film is glamorizing his experiences, making us ask the questions you know, just like we talked about with maybe Ted Bundy, like it's, oh, who is he? What does he want? What's his messaging? What's he getting across? He's the the star in a lot of ways. He has his culminating final scene where his message gets, gets elevated. And so I think to try to tie that back to what we were just talking about, it's like the film does not reprimand Kevin Spacey. The film glamorizes him, highlights him and makes it his show. And he's the interesting component. And his crimes then, the way that he committed the crimes and what his like messaging and his preaching was, I think the film did enough to reinforce the messages that Kevin Spacey was trying to deliver. It certainly didn't reprimand them. I mean, it just didn't. And so it felt to me like, if anything, this film was on some meta level, it was actually reinforcing the argument that Kevin Spacey was making. It was like, it was like re-elevating his message. All these people are wrong. They're wrong for all these reasons there was no counter messaging going on whatsoever. I mean, you could say, oh, it's counter messaging because Kevin Spacey is like the villain in the film, but yeah, he's the villain, but he's exactly right. Like he nailed it in that speech heading out to the crime scene. He's the villain, but we're all here because we care about him and we want to watch him and we're intrigued by him and it's his story. And so I don't think, and I just, the, the film didn't, it didn't do anything to dispel the messaging he was putting out about women. It didn't do anything to dispel the messaging he was putting out about sexuality. It didn't, he never got reprimanded on any of those fronts. And so I really do think it just elevated his crimes and the message of his crimes. Nothing wrong with a man taking pleasure in his work. I won't deny my own personal desire to turn each sin against the sinner. Wait a minute. I thought, all you did was kill innocent people. Innocent? Is that supposed to be funny? An obese man? A disgusting man who could barely stand up? A man who, if you saw him on the street, you'd point him out to your friends so that they could join you in mocking him? A man who, if you saw him while you were eating, you wouldn't be able to finish your meal? And after him, I picked the lawyer, and you both must have secretly been thanking me for that one. This is a man who dedicated his life to making money by lying with every breath that he could muster to keeping murderers and rapists on the streets. Murderers. A woman. Murderers, John, like a yourself. Woman. So ugly on the inside that she couldn't bear to go on living if she couldn't be beautiful on the outside. A, a drug dealer, a, a drug dealing pederast, actually. 
And let's not forget the disease-spreading whore. Only in a world this shitty could you even try to say these were innocent people and keep a straight face. But that's the point. We see a deadly sin on every street corner, in every home, and we tolerate it. We tolerate it because it's common. It's, it's trivial. We tolerate it morning, noon, and night. Well, not anymore. I'm setting the example. And what I've done is going to be puzzled over and studied and followed forever. Yeah. Illusions of grandeur. You should be thanking me. Why is that, John? Because you're going to be remembered after this. I feel like there's a little bit of slippage happening with what you're saying between elevating him and elevating the message of his crimes. So you don't think the the film ever holds up a mirror to as Henry, I think did at some at points of to hold up the mirror to us and be like, you watching this film or is part of the, are part of the problem. No, if it did, I think it could go a different way. I no, I think it gave us, it rewarded us for that. It showed us this really overweight body with a bunch of like grotesque marks on it, whatever. And it, it had us gawk at that with no sense of empathy for that character, but just gawking. And I think it had us look at the implement that was used on that woman again, with no sense of empathy for her character, or what she would have gone through or using that pain to make us feel something. But I think it was just, we were gawking and so much so that, like I said, her character didn't even exist and didn't, need to for the purposes of the film we saw the man who did it cry for five minutes but we didn't even need to see her i think given the way it treated women in the rest of the film like i said it, it demonized women for caring too much about their appearance and then showed female characters as only important for their appearance or wandering around nicely in the background so it i think it reinforced a lot of it and i i mean just to throw this on the table too there was a lot of really problematic i mean they brad pitt uses faggot as an expletive he doesn't want to sit on the same table side of the table as Morgan Freeman because he doesn't want people to think they're dating. Like there was a lot of problematic dialogue around that also. I mean, it is 1995. <laughs> I mean, I, I would, yeah. I'm saying it's a good thing, but I do just context wise, context wise, like, yes, he, 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 he says faggot as an expletive and he does the, has the homophobia of, but in the big scheme of things, with 1985, I don't think that was a particularly egregious homophobia. I think that was. Probably- I guess it just felt typical on all of these fronts, right? Like it, it certainly it didn't challenge any of sure. these arguments that sure. it was putting forth, and and I think that was especially highlighted in Kevin Spacey's speech at the end when he just calls the the sex worker a whore, and when he goes into this oh god, just brutally painful speech about the guy who's overweight, and he was never he's never reprimanded for it. I mean, very easily, I think you could see the audience watching that film and being like, yeah, right on. I mean, there was just, there was no messaging to make you not feel that way. So you don't, uh, okay. So that's a real, that's a very interesting idea to me. So you don't feel like these crimes were presented as unreasonable or excessive to where we would 
as viewers look at Kevin Spacey and think, I mean, he's preaching to us, but he's, this is obviously all ridiculous or unreasonable or disproportionate or rational, whatever word you want to say there. No, I guess that's like, yeah, I would say that's like the crux of my argument. I never, I never felt that. And part of that probably is because I never felt empathy for the victims. I felt like that was not fostered in us at all. They felt like they were at a carnival and we were there to gawk. Yeah, I'm I'm reflecting on I'm reflecting on the, the idea of empathy for the victims. Um that's interesting because yeah, in, in a lot of ways I in a lot of ways, you're right. I don't think we have empathy for the victims. I don't think we have empathy for the for the glutton. I don't think we have empathy for the lawyer, greed. Uh I don't think we have empathy for we certainly don't for sloth. And someone actually leans over him while he's in the bed and says, like, you deserve this. Yeah, yeah. yeah, right. So at least the, so we've got the first three. So then I'm trying to, and then pride is is really just a throwaway. We don't know anything about her to feel empathy about her or not. Uh, lust, we have, like you said, we have more empathy for the person who killed the woman than anything we don't even see the woman herself so she's disregarded and and that that misogyny there with those two in particular is 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 i grant you really even even worse than i initially would have thought i was just trying to think but those two i was trying to think if there was like a range of like from pederast to like mills where where john doe is is killing again, a full continuum of like guilt or of terrible terribleness. Like, yeah, you're a drug dealer and a, and a pedophile and you've had years and years of you abusing people and all kinds of terribleness. And then Mill's like a detective who he's got some problems, but he's trying to do good things. He just is, you know, doesn't have control or discipline or whatever it is. So I was trying to see if there's, and then, so what? Okay, so let's say, let's grant that. Even if there's a full range, all the way to these victims who have no guilt whatsoever. Well, now, hold on, let me think about that. So I guess the guilt of, so the guilt of the greedy lawyer's wife was she stuck with him and benefited and profited from his providing a good defense for terrible criminals, uh, which, you know, there's different issues with that, but whatever. I'm just trying to think of the collateral damage, if you will. The 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 guy who has to fuck the the sex worker to death, he's guilty, I guess, because he's there hiring the sex worker. Although when Kevin Spacey at the end is talking about the that crime, he calls her a disease spreading whore. Yeah. And doesn't mention the man. Right. But he's but again, the the collateral damage, because where I'm getting at is What's Gwyneth's name? Laura, can you hear me? What'd you say? I said, what's Gwyneth's name? I don't, I, everybody was too famous for me to know their names. <laughs> Tracy. I just, I, I just looked. So Tracy, what I was getting at is Tracy is like the only one who, or is like the most innocent of all of them. Yeah. Cause 
Mills's guilt is is wrath as provoked by the fact that John Doe's envy killed his wife and killed his pregnant wife without any cause at all is Mills's guilt as in terms of wrath really is non-existent other than he throws the camera at, or he tells him to fuck off when he's taking pictures of him in the stairway and kicks in his door. Like we don't ever see him be wrathful earlier on. He's not, we don't see him like arresting somebody and loses his shit. And I don't know, kneels on him till he dies or whatever. Beats some, some person who's going to be arrested to an inch of their life or anything like that. So he really, so the only way, the only wrath that we really see that is, I would say is really um, unreasonable or unexplained is only in the prompt or is only as provoked by John Doe killing his, his pregnant wife, which is again, unjustified. So, okay. So if we have a full range so I'm going to call that a full range of innocence to guilt in terms of the victims. And then I want to go back to, so what? Even if we take that as granted, as given, I'm not 100% certain on it yet. Then my question is, is that clear enough to us as the viewers to think, well, this John Doe is obviously killing people indiscriminately or, or even maybe not indiscriminately, but he's killing folks all the way from totally very guilty and terrible people to not guilty and, and good people, innocent people. And that therefore his, his objective or his, that undermines his preaching that it should be to disregard whatever lesson he's giving. And I'm really torn because I agree with you that we gawk. I agree with you that, that the crimes are presented as, as sensational and there's some real meta issues with that. I agree with you that I can't say I had a lot of empathy for the victims of all the times I've watched this. So I agree with you on that. Where I don't agree with you is I never thought John Doe Spacey was the star of the film. I never was really, I never thought he was, I mean, his whole thing was he's not supposed to be memorable and he's, he's ordinary in all these ways. Uh, he's forgettable. He, he is supposed to be just anyone or everyone. It's literally John Doe. Right. And so I never, I never thought that he was the star. I always thought, I always thought Mills and Somerset were the stars. So I guess just, I'm thinking about my experience over the last 25 years of watching this film. And then the other thing I never thought was I never, I never, I, for whatever that's worth. Right. I never came away from the film thinking, wow, John Doe's preaching was effective. Yeah, we do have too much sin in our culture and and uh, whatever should result from that. So I guess that's where I'm struggling. Because if he was preaching, I never got it. I was like, your crimes are real interesting, but your your overall message that you're trying to send about like <laughs> these are the things we that I just never landed and maybe that's me I don't know but is that do anything for you does that give you anything, you anything to respond to I'm gonna like 
I'm going to free associate some things here. <laughs> maybe sure. it'll maybe it'll come together. I guess a couple of the quotes I found the ones that I'd written down. So when when John Doe's in the backseat of the police car at the you know heading to the final scene, Brad Pitt says, "Who are you, John? Tell us a little about yourself." And just somehow that was like that helped me wrap my head around the fact that this was his story. Like that was the culmination of the movie was finding him and figuring out what he was doing. And then there's this little back and forth about, you know, I'm not important, you know, whatever he says, you know, he's not important, but his work is. And then he says something like this will be puzzled about and studied for, you know, forever. People are going to care. And I felt like the film itself reinforced that argument. Like, yeah, sure, people are interested. 25 years later talking about it. <laughs> well, yeah, just because, well, like, because what he's doing is interesting. Like his, again, it's, I won't necessarily try to make the argument that it's effective preaching, like you're saying, but he's the star. And that made me think of the end of Summer of I Sam. When, how is he the star? Just because it's one point in the film, he gets asked, who are you? And he doesn't. Because it's you. all about his work, right? It's all these people spending all their effort and energy trying to figure out what he's thinking and what he's doing and what's going on here. And this is interesting. And what's he going to do next? And it's, it's all about the story he's trying to tell. Like the entire film is his story and it's us being that, super interested in his story. Okay. So, so that's where I'm going to, I am going to push back is, but all of that is only interesting because we're seeing how it impacts Somerset and Mills. It's you think so? You, I think we're there largely to gawk. I think we're there to see what this guy's going to do next because what he is doing is fascinating. It's only fascinating because we're, we want to see what, how Mills and Somerset respond to it. It's only fascinating to see if, if, if Mills is going to be able to do it as this novice detective or if Somerset is going to stay on or, or deal with it, even though it's his last week on the job, or if it's going to push him over the edge to, or if it's going to loop him back in and he's going to have to stick with this final crime, even though he's trying to leave or in the midst of all these other crimes that are happening is what's that going to do for him? Like that's, I mean, I, I maybe that's where our fundamental difference is, is I'd never, for me, it was always only ever about Mills and Somerset and, and what they were going to do. And yes, his crimes are all very interesting and all that, but, and we do gawk them because they are extraordinary in the literal sense of extraordinary. But I, uh, yeah, yeah, we can totally agree and disagree with that. I, I see how you could argue that. Maybe I'm not going to stop there. Maybe I'm going to say if it were really the story of John Doe, it would have been. I'm trying to think of a counter counter argument. I'm trying to think if, you know, I guess just like, you know, look at Henry or look at any of these other films we watch the killer. Okay. So look at the shockingly evil and vile where it was ostensibly a story about the girlfriend, but really ended up being a story about, about Bundy. This I actually do think was the story about Somerset and Mills. Cause we start with them. We stay with them they respond and react to J John Doe's crimes, but we're, we always loop back to them. Whereas 
precisely to the, con- to the contrary with Shocking Evil and Vile, we start with her story and then we both really don't come back to her. I don't know. I just, for me, that was a, a fundamental difference and that's fine. Go ahead. I, I can see your argument and I am curious to hear what, where you want to go with that, assuming that that is uh, take that for granted and go with that. Well, I have a question though. Do you think that this film would have been popular if it had been the same story detective wise, the same story, but the crimes had not been as sensationalist and we had not seen, we hadn't had the viewing experience of the crimes that we had. But what is the viewing experience of the crimes? We don't see them. We don't see the blood. We don't see the brutality. We see the aftermath. I mean, we get glimpses, but we don't like, we don't see John Doe standing over sloth and a montage of him like visiting every week over the course of the year and just watching him decline and him doing whatever. And we don't watch, we don't have John Doe like standing there, like pushing the gun into the guy's head. Like you've got to eat, you've got to eat. Yes. The crimes are sensational, but they're not, they're not sensationalized in the film on the screen. The ideas of them are extraordinary or sensational, but like, I I guess just that. If you think about for a horror film, glamorizing the crimes themselves, like shit, the whole, I mean, we could have taken out 50% of Mills and Somerset and put in, let's do the, the actual crimes. Let's watch him sit there and like, come on, fat boy, eat, you know, you lazy piece of shit or I don't know, whatever. Right. And watch him like <laughs> saw off the, the chick's nose. I mean, maybe I, I, I see what you're saying. I also think there might just be some element of like the sewer scene at the beginning of it, right. Where it's scarier, it's worse somehow being delivered that way. Oh, yeah. But I mean, I don't know. I, I've watched, I I see the film as driven by those scenes and by his crime, much less so than the story of the detectives, but maybe that's not true. I I mean, I don't, I don't know. Oh, that's so interesting. I mean, I find it really fascinating that we are fairly far apart on that. I find that really interesting for me. It was always, I guess I just took John Doe as a placeholder because of what they say and the, and the, the minimizing of who he is. And right, the emphasis is on the crimes. But when the emphasis is on the crimes, the emphasis is on the crimes, not him. And for them to be detectives, I mean, that's, I, I don't know, whatever. Go ahead with what you're, I hear you. I just, I find it really interesting. That's cool. We can, we can agree to disagree on that. I, I, I don't, I've, I've spoken my piece about where I differ with you on that. And I'm, that's, that's totally cool by me. I, I'm okay with that. I don't know how you feel. It reminded me of the end of Summer of Sam when you see Berkowitz in the car being driven into the police station and he's looking out the window and there are just hordes of people watching him and he you can tell from his face that he feels like a celebrity. And that sentiment, that treatment of the serial killer is what I felt in this film based on all of these arguments that I'm making. I, I felt like it was driven, maybe you're right, not by his personality, but by his crimes we were there because we were interested in following him and seeing what he would do. And those crimes were 
you know, from a moral perspective, problematic. And often in a serial killer film, the serial killer's crimes would be problematic, but they were problematic and they just weren't the film. I think in a lot of the ways that those crimes were problematic, the film reinforced those same types of problems. I will say as my closing argument, you know, if his crimes were discriminatory toward women, the film was too. Sure. I'm not saying it did the exact same thing, but there was a similarity there. The the sexism there, I absolutely grant you hundred percent. And I think too, like with, I mean, I, I just, the scene at the end where, John Doe was talking about the overweight man. It was brutally painful to hear. And it also just felt dated in the sense that like, I don't feel like people would say that now, but it was just, it was painful. And it was never, it was, I can think of zero examples in this film where the messaging that John Doe was putting out there was challenged. And I can think of several examples where it was reinforced. The negative stereotypes about sexuality were reinforced in the scene where he's talking to the guy from the sex shop and it's reinforced in, you know, Brad Pitt's language about homosexuality. And it's, it's just a lot of those, the problematic ideologies that Kevin Spacey's crimes embodied were in large part reinforced by the film. And to me, it felt like a film that was all about the crimes, at least all about Kevin Spacey's message with no counter argument. And, and yeah, that's just a mess. Like that, that feels like the worst way to do a serial killer film to just glorify what felt to me like glorifying what felt to me like, like I said, the look on Berkowitz's face as he's being driven to the police station. It just, it felt like that about the crimes. Ew. (laughs) Well, the one thing that comes to mind that is a pushback is when they're miking up and some or no, this is actually in the bar, I think, where they're having drinks and and Somerset says to Mills, if we catch John Doe and he's the devil, if he's Satan himself, that might meet our expectations. But he's not the devil. He's just a man. And that for me is that for me is really like the crux of the story where what Somerset is has where he has gotten to over his presumably storied career as a homicide detective in New York is it's not about good and evil. It's not about sins. It is about the, just the cruelty of people to each other. And that is what has disillusioned him is there is no stopping the tide. There is no preaching. And Mills is this idealistic I still think I can do some good. And it's, he's very casual about it. And he's, I mean, he says that, you know, like in the very beginning, he's he's like, why'd you get reassigned here? And he's like, I don't know. I thought I could do some good. He's like, you know, whatever. And he's, he's aspirational. And, and that's several, there's a couple of times there where again, with the backseat of the car and Mills is like, if you're insane, do you know you're insane or, or have you just lost track of the, have you lost the thread completely? And so you, you don't even know that you're insane at this point. And at some point, you know, uh, yeah, Somerset says to him, um, he's not insane. It's, it's wrong to dismiss him as crazy. This is all very, so he, he's like chiseling away these explanations that we tell ourselves about why all these terrible things happen. And now as far as like what, Okay, so this would maybe help explain my reaction to the film, which is like, you're saying, oh, well, it's really problematic that 
that he's blaming all of these people because of their sin. I don't believe in any of that shit anyway. Fuck you and your sins. It's all the Catholic church. Like, I don't care. I gave up the Catholic church when I was like eight years old. (laughs) Or, I mean, it was more like freshman year of high school when I was like, oh, this is absurd and ridiculous anyway. So maybe when I bring that to the film, just the fact that he started out at the level of, I'm going to base my morality on a morality from, again, Judeo-Christian philosophy of like the 1600s. I was like, well, that's just stupid. Uh, (laughs) That's been obsolete for 400 years, at least. Let's see what he does. Then it's, it's like a saw thing for me. It's not, I mean, theory, that's interesting comparison. Isn't he preaching just like Jigsaw is preaching in, in the saw films where he's like, I don't, I can't even remember. What is he, isn't he preaching in, in, you shouldn't have killed my kid or something. What happened? Didn't we just? Yeah, <laughs> I I know, and I kept thinking back to that too because it oh, is similar okay. in that I way. Missed that completely. That just sailed over my head. That's kind of interesting. I, I, it is, and I'd I love think to hear what you thought about that. Well, so I think in saw because I was trying to remember our conversation on saw and thinking exactly what you just said. Didn't we just do this? And why can't <laughs> I remember this very well? But I think one of the issues that we brought up with saw was that his moral messaging that he was trying to deliver was just, it wasn't correct. It was like, it was like, even if I don't remember if the message was ever okay, that he was trying to put out there, but his execution just botched his messaging anyway. So, you know, it was like you had a drug addict or something and it was like, Oh, if you really want to live, you should crawl through the whatever, but then he dies anyway or something. And and so it just got, it got super messy, but he was also preaching with his, crimes. And I believe we also criticized him for preaching things that were not appropriate. Like, you know, someone has suffering severe depression or whatever. And you're like, get up and be happy. Like, or you deserve to die in some horrible way. It was very, Oh, that's what it was. Right. It was just like very, uh, mansplaining kind of like I can solve everybody's problems. I know the answer to all of your stuff. You just did what I told you to do. It would be all fine. And then you had scenes where people we're supporting that, right? You had like, I think a woman in one of the scenes was like, oh, thank you, Jigsaw, for showing me the way. And so it was just kind of an ideological mess like that. I think Saw had stronger elements of winning the audience over to it. And it was a problematic argument it was making anyway. And so that is maybe worse. I don't feel like this one, I would agree with you on that, that I don't think the preaching was terribly effective, nor was it supposed to be. I think it was gawking at his crimes, but I do think that the effect of the preaching, it's like it's subtly reinforced in the film. I don't think it was saw. I think you were potentially, I don't know if supposed to is the right way to say it, but you certainly could have left the film. Maybe you were even supposed to thinking like, Hey, that jigsaw, he had some good ideas. (laughs) I I, I don't think in this film you were supposed to leave that way, nor do I think probably most people did. Although some may have when he's giving his little speeches at the end that are never challenged about how, gross overweight people are and that disease spreading (laughs) horror you know some people very well may have been on board with him for some of that but the film like i said it subtly reinforced all those things it subtly chastised sexuality it subtly put down women it there was more than just sexuality and gender okay i i the other thing that that makes me think of is how about this is jigsaw 
for sure became the celebrity from the Saw films, not the detectives. I actually happen to really be a fan of... Uh, Oh God! I just said she's. A, I'm a fan of hers, and I can't think of her fucking name. Uh, Dina Meyer, who's the detective in Saw or in the subsequent Saw movies. I'm a fan of hers. I've been a fan of hers since she was like on 90210. I didn't even remember she was in those movies. <laughs> I was like, oh shit, she's in these. Uh, but the the detectives in this are what I think of. So if we want to talk about like glamorizing or creating a celebrity around the killer, much more saw jigsaw than, than John Doe. Now the killings themselves saw is also an interesting example. Cause I think what people remember, I, and what I remember about the saw films is whatever the contraption is that upsets you the most, right? People of the needles, the falling into the bed, pool of needles is probably the top one I hear for me. It's the tearing the jaw open. Cause I have all kinds of teeth issues that I, that freak me out. But those are the, like the, those are like, that's how you, if you want to make gawking at killing saw is how you do it. <laughs> and you make seven of those movies instead of one movie called seven. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and you belabor <laughs> and like celebrate the, the methods of torture for the rest. I, I still, I, I think what you're saying is really interesting, Laura. And I think, I think it absolutely holds water. I guess I'm right now I've kind of shifted to, I don't, I think it's interesting why it hasn't landed with me. And now that I think about it, I feel like, yeah, that's all. That's, that's, uh, and yeah, as far as disparaging the, the victims, you know, I don't know. The big scheme of horror or in this in the scheme of i guess on the scheme of, i don't know the other thing is maybe i am also i mean if anybody's desensitized to the film it's me because i've watched it to access so i have long since shifted to to looking at i don't know detail and craft and story construction and like the acting and you know i've went and looked up like so it's mills who they reference right who wrote paradise lost and I think Somerset, oh, Mahan, does that sound right? There's some Somerset who wrote about Seven Deadly Skins. Like, I've done a little bit of that. I thought it was all interesting. But for me, I think as much as anything else, the movie is and remains compelling is, one, I think the murders are really interesting. So you've got me there for sure. And two, this is a movie like Prisoners in the sense that I just love the world that they've built. I love the mood of it. I love the the colors of it. I love the bleakness of it. I like the characters. I like the dark, gritty, neo-noir. Just It's just a dark movie. There is no real happiness in it. You know, there's no joy in it. And there's there's only there's only so many films that that I feel like for whatever reason I find those films comforting. <laughs> It's it's really interesting that you say that because that's exactly what I was going to ask was what is it for you that balances out the, I mean, just overt and extreme and super problematic sexism and those problematic references to sexuality, those horribly awful sexism throughout the film. There's, it's all about men and men playing a game basically with other people's lives, you know, it's like, it's like detectives versus killer. 
And the killer is like, I respect you detectives. And the detectives say things to each other about like, oh, didn't you get that rush of, you know, like, like they're on the hunt and they're fighting each other. And it's like, there's a little bit of football game or something going on on that level. And then there's a bunch of just like, yeah, faggot like thrown in there and just like really icky let's, stuff. Let's, like, let's step back here, Laura. He says it once because he's frustrated reading whoever the cliff notes and he doesn't want to sit next to him on the table. This isn't okay. Okay, twice. Where, right? okay. <laughs> all right, all right. I will take that criticism. And but still, the sexism, there's, yes, there's I will a there. And I, again, if this were made today, those would even be more problematic. And I'm not excusing it. I am just saying that some of it is some nostalgia for me. And as 1995 goes, I mean, that's like 80% of movies were movies about men, for men, starring men, written by men. I mean, I guess. I just can't help but picture again your like violent reaction to come to daddy. It's like, we don't need any more of this. This is just terrible. Why? Because come to daddy was made last year. If this film were made last but, year, we would probably have, be having a different discussion. Okay, okay, but let me just, again, just to and. argue with you. Like, Last House on the Left, we were applauding in some ways for, you know, the older version for yeah. dealing with gender better, for example. And, and the more recent version is way more trouble. So, I don't know. I mean, it's, I don't know. I, I... I'm surprised by your uh, desire to let so many of these, I think, egregious issues go. I mean, I'll, I'll certainly say, I, I don't know if the last time I saw this may have been in the theater in 1995 and I remember loving it. And so I was excited to see it again because I thought it was going to be good. And I, when I saw it then, didn't catch any of this like at all, um, which makes me really sad and depressed about society and just the world I've grown up in like apparently I just thought it was totally normal you don't have to show any of the female characters doing anything remotely interesting and you can kill them off without even telling us who they were it doesn't even matter it's not the important part like none of that even registered whatsoever to me which I'm sure did terrible things to my brain that I'm probably only slowly recovering from but like I was I was shocked honestly I was shocked and it only grew as the film went on. And it was just like the icing on the cake when Gwyneth Paltrow's head or fetus, whatever it was, shows up in the box at the end of the film. And I, I was like, I can't believe you're handing this to me. Like you're, at first I was like, oh, is that what that is? Then I was like, oh, please be what that is because like, it just wraps together this whole argument. You couldn't do it better than to just cut off her head at the end of the film as though she didn't matter at all. I thanked them for that, at least for being consistent. One, I appreciate that admission. And I will say that certainly I I will acknowledge that I apparently or possibly have been mystified to to an extent over having rewatched this and watched this and whether that was out of nostalgia or whatever. I'm still going to say, at least with this, they have a fucking plan and they don't leave the film ambiguous at best. And at worst, you should be like John Doe. <laughs> they don't ever say I realize that. we're about to come to daddy. Lead. I didn't even right. They don't ever, they don't ever lead into the, like John Doe really had his shit figured out. Like he's the one you should look for. He was still problematized. He might have been like, look, his shit was really cool, but he wasn't like held up as this standard bearer of morality and masculinity. Um 
That being said, again, for me, it was always a it was always a film about the struggle between like a nihilism and a or a disillusionment and an idealism. And in terms of like struggle of good and evil, it was it was uh, they're just very interesting in the like we've got order and discipline and thoughtfulness and experience and, and the disillusionment all connected and the, the chaos and the haphazard and the not, not impetuousness, but uh, like when you act on impulse, impulsiveness, the impulsiveness and the idealism of Brad Pitt are just the, the alignment of those ideologies in these two characters and symbolic there of struggling to, to approach this, this killer, this evil, that is this, this like culmination of, or this transcendent series of crimes. And what is that going to do for what that means for the people who are kind of, at least in the film are trying to like hold some semblance of morality together that to me is what the story was. That's where I enjoyed it. Yes. Judge me for sure. If you need to, or if you want to about me being willing to ignore the, the homophobia and, and that derogatoriness, as far as gender goes, the women, yes, are ignored and as used as lamps, but, and that is uh, clearly problematic. I, and I admit that fully, at the same time, again, in the scheme of particularly horror films where I'll just present, you know, this is a little bit disingenuous, but, or maybe it's a lot disingenuous, but the counter of, I mean, the short version is there's a lot more problematic that could be done. The problematic here with the women is really their sexism and they're ultimately just omitted. But the, the, the problem with women is not like, we're going to put them on screen sexualize them, objectify them, and then watch them be brutally murdered for the next hour. You know, like there, there's a lot more problematic we could, we could do. And so again, judge me if you want. And I admit that some of my mystification has crept in or has been, can you, uh, what is the word? Um, I can't. Okay. Oh, I don't know if my mystification can be cumulative but yeah i think that's where i'm at what, what else is on your list i think we pretty much got the whole list yeah and and i i will say i will totally grant you the argument you're making about idealism and and the film revolving around that as well because you're right it did and i'm overlooking a lot of that in my assessment of the film but it that was absolutely there so i i don't think you're i don't think you're wrong in laying that out I do think that it's not really appropriate to say that this is better even necessarily than, I don't know, than slasher films that, like you said, sexualize women and then brutally slaughter them. We have just a different, but I would argue equally problematic problem going on here where women are both, where women are being punished for the same messaging that the film is promoting about women. And that I think is equally bad. But other than that, I, I'm willing to let most of what you just laid out there stand, really. And again, I like I see 
I, I see what you're saying. I think some of that has to be the fact that I've been watching it repeatedly or or consistently for the last 25 years and you haven't watched it since. And, uh, you know, I'll just also put that, like I said, with the mood, the whole, the film is a whole mood, which is a mood that I love. And like I said, there's very few examples of that, of that mood for me. And then, uh, you know, I'll just say also there's for what it's doing. It is technically basically done perfectly. Everything's shot well. It's all done in the rain and in the dark. It's acted well. It's presented. It's edited nicely. It's it's all efficient and like so. Just the technical that that and which we've talked about this right is or I you know I was just listening to or I'm just working on our episode on uh, Insidious where we talk about this similarly where I'm actually right at the point where we talk about is it better to have or what are the trade offs between something being like really slick, like the conjuring to where it can just fly by and you don't even necessarily, you know, you get so you can get wrapped into the experience because the, the suture and the, the creation of the film is so tight that you, you don't have that space or you have, you have minimal space to kind of step back and be like, okay, what is happening here? And the trade-offs between that and like something that's clunky and has sort of silly moments or moments that are so, absurdly egregious that there is more space to like catch yourself and be like, okay. And so I guess for me, I got put into my little world in seven and I'm like, ah, a couple of sexist, you know, sex negative disregarding for women, a couple of sexy lamps. It's happened before. It's fine. <laughs> like, <laughs> Which it's not, and I appreciate you pointing it out and emphasizing it again to me, Laura, because who knows, I could have been watching it for another 25 years and not have been having to confront my excusing these faults in the film. So yeah, I think that's I think that's interesting. I think that's been emerging in our conversations of those differences between, well, I guess that, that that's a piece of our theme that has gone on for some time where we talk about the entertainment value matters in how much how much the experience of it can and the emotional connection of it and the entertainment of it can either contribute or not to being able to look at it from this ideological sociological analytical lens that we do and apparently the distance that you have from it you were you had a much greater vantage point and i've i I know it so well i've kind of ignored the parts that aren't aren't good and i i revel in the you know i was like going through this time and i'm like oh you know when the first scene with mills when he shows up and says hello to somerset he's got basketball hoops and basketballs on his tie like that's interesting i never you know i've watched this 60 times 70 times eight times i've never noticed that particular detail before so i'm like so far in those weeds i've lost the the big picture so i i totally appreciate what you're saying i don't think anything you said is yeah I, well i i challenged the few pieces where i thought you were you know maybe overstepping a bit but sure you're yeah i'm not 
I'm definitely not disagreeing with you at a level of come to daddy where I'm just like, there's no way I cannot accept that. I totally can unappreciate your, your position here. So I think before we grade it, I would like to just give a quick rundown on what we've learned about serial killer films here, because one thing is jumping to mind after this film. And that would be how good Henry was in terms of depiction of the serial killer and how interesting the serial killer is. And I can't get the image from Summer of Sam of Berkowitz in the car out of my head Mm. for the representation of that. But just is the serial killer held up on a pedestal? And I don't necessarily just mean, because what you highlighted in this film, like, oh, Kevin Spacey's not that important. He kind of just shows up at the end. He's not that interesting. But the whole thing is about his messaging. Like it's, it's whatever he's trying to deliver is like a big draw of the film. And you're so interested. And I think to me, at least when Brad Pitt says in the car, you know, like, so who are you, John? Tell us about yourself. To me, that was a big driver of this film. And I so appreciate how Henry didn't do that. Henry really did not draw us into, I mean, we were tempted many times. We were, you know, sometimes sitting in Becky's shoes and Henry and saying, oh, who is he? Can he love me? Like, what could, you know, could this be? Maybe there's more there. Maybe he's a good person. But those drives were just like shut down, shut down, shut down. And in this film, they really weren't. In the Ted Bundy film, they really weren't. And I mean, not only that, but Bundy was depicted in a way where we didn't even see what the bad he did. (laughs) we We were shown just the good parts of his story in a lot of ways. I, I, so there's, there's something really important about whether the serial killer's actions are glamorized or not. Mm-hmm. And I think Henry is becoming, the more films we see, an even better example of how not to glamorize the serial killer's actions. I would say in, in Seven, I felt like his actions were glamorized and like they were the star of the show in a way that I, I really don't stand behind. But that's probably my biggest overall serial killer take home from this film. I don't know. Do you have anything? I don't actually know where to go with this, but I think it ought to at least just be said that this is the first one we've watched that is not based on a real killer. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, you're right. That seems somehow just something that should be said. (laughs) And it was also interesting just because you said, and and because those were the two most recent, this and Summer of Sam were the two that we tried to, that we watched most recently, those killings couldn't be more different. Berkowitz is claiming his dog and whatever. And there's at least in the film, we get no motivation. Apparently it was people making out in cars or, or whatever, but not all of them. And there was no, there was no sense of it meaning having any meaning at all. And then this one we've got, it's only meaning I mean, he literally says in the film, right, that you don't do this unless the act itself has meaning. And uh, that's all I got. (laughs) I feel like there's something else there, but I I don't know. Because I was just thinking, one, I agree with you. Henry is still incredible. I was impressed before. You're right. Every movie we've watched since then, I've just been like, well, Henry's still by far the best. And like you said, in, in many ways, even better just because in point of contrast for the last 40 years, people have making films that are worse <laughs> about somewhat similar topics. And so I agree with you that totally. I'm so glad you said that. I just want to say on what you just said, 
I, it's really interesting. You're right that this was not about a real ser- serial killer. Saw is not about a real serial killer. I'm trying to think of what we've seen, which now has been at least a somewhat, you know, a handful of these films. No, Hen- well, it was Henry was, I think, loosely based on somebody yep. or something, yes, right? Yes, he was. Um, it was. Yep. Is this true? This is true of the ones we've seen. The films we've seen that have been about actual serial killers, the serial killer has not had some sort of grand message drama full presentation i'm picturing like people on a stage dancing away from their <laughs> lovely creation you know they're just kind of doing their thing but the ones that we create like non serial killers you know but people writing for the serial killer genre create okay based on this again very small sample size are films that are like that are that that are just like high production value there's choreography there's like you know special lighting you walk down and the set is flashing in certain ways and like it's really and it's got a message and there's a reason behind it and I don't know I just wonder if there's something there like when we write stories about this type of thing like we want there to be some sort of underlying reason and cause and spectacular payoff and yeah, like Henry just kind of slams the door on that. Henry was so good. I, I agree with what you're saying. Absolutely. It's interesting. Who knows? Maybe as we watch a couple more or after with some time to, to noodle, to marinate on it, we can, we might come up with something else. And I'm glad you said, yes, saw clearly also is not based. <laughs> 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 uh but I, I do think it shifts the dynamic somewhat because, because, okay, we're even if this film is glamorizing John Doe, it's not actually glamorizing some person who existed and who killed folks. And they're, so they're making money off of people who literally died and were abused somewhere. But yeah. Anyway, I just want to say that I, 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 that's all. That's all I got. Then if you're open to grading it, I, I'm ready to grade it too. I am. I, did, I need to say one more sentence and then I yeah, can be done. Please. You're right that actual people aren't being victimized or weren't victimized for the sake of making the film. But when the motivation of the, cur- the serial killer is ideology, hmm. then I think that gets into much more problematic territory. Then you have to really pay attention to what the messaging is of the killing that's happening. And, and so in this case, and in Saw, I suppose because they're so strongly ideology based, the motivation for it, then it does get more problematic. I think even though it wasn't real people. What was his master plan and house that Jack built? I mean, I know what he did and I don't want to say that because spoilers, but like toward what end was that? I forgot art creation. Was it just uniqueness? like art? Like, a... yeah. Cause he has his whole, all his models of his ideal house. And he like started building his actual construction house and had changed it a couple of times. But do you remember it's like whether the creative process has to be derivative or something? <laughs> I, don't, I don't remember exactly. I don't but... either. I remember, I remember just being blown away at how cool that movie was in terms of kind of like seven of this, like master argument that was being constructed Again, obviously the murders weren't weren't the same of like the murders themselves were preaching, but I felt like wasn't there some piece there? I don't know if maybe. you're driving around or something and you maybe you 
re-listen to that episode or maybe I will try to or or look at the film again or something. Anyway, I that's so I just was trying to think of what I'm not saying we need to rewatch that again, but as long as we're back into this genre, that seems like a film that is relevant to some of these discussions and it was such a high concept, high art film. Maybe to skim that again maybe it'll give us some payoff as we move forward here i agree with you yeah so what we do at this point the final segment of the episode is we give an overall grade considering everything we've talked about as to the social ethical contribution or lack thereof of the film where those concerns are primary and entertainment value and those sorts of considerations are secondary and really are only considered in service of, or how they relate to the sociological and the the cultural critique. I mean, I have to go F (laughs) and the only thing I'll I'll say to temper that a tiny bit is that I think if we went back and watched devil's rejects sometime, which I loved and obsessed over for a long time. And it's one of the only films I've seen many, 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 I can't count it how many times. Um, And also, yeah, had a a super huge crush on Bill Mosley from it for reasons that are probably super problematic. Um, I think if we went back and watched that, I would probably end up having to say F and being disappointed in myself as well. So you're not alone in um, (laughs) this trajectory here, but uh, yeah, I'm just, I'm just going to go F. Oh, well, I knew you were going to go low. I don't know that I thought you were going to fail it outright. So I guess the question for me is, is am I really willing to kill my darling or am I, am I going to, or another way, let me say that differently. The question for me is how much am I willing to disillusion myself as to the, the, the contribution or the acceptability of the film well, this probably won't age well, but <laughs> this probably won't age well. I, I am I'm not gonna fail a film, Laura. I'm gonna stick with it at, at the, the C minus because I still for me it is a story about good and evil and and the futility or the sort of the Sisyphean effort of trying to maintain an interest and a effort to hold accountable the evil people of the world who whether it's Berkowitz with no agenda or John Doe with with the entire agenda it was for me it's a much more philosophical film than it is as you as you pointed out the glamorization and I'm I'm still very much focused on all the ways with the the uh all the ways it could have been worse or it could have been much more problematic. I hear you what you're saying, but I'm for whatever reason is going to land on, on the other side of that. I, I don't even really want to give it a C minus, but I feel like if I don't, I'm really going to be, I'm really going to be in the weeds when we listen to this or we revisit this in like a year, or two years. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. And then I'm trying to, you know, I'm doing all kinds of like mental gymnastics over here to to justify. I'm like, 
has Pincher made any other films where he has redeemable, redeeming women characters? Is he just another Quentin Tarantino or Oliver Stone? And I'm like, you know, he made Alien 3, which is very Sigourney Weaver kicking ass and and Girl with Dragon Tattoo, which is arguably feminist in a lot of ways. So besides, I'll just skip all that for now, other than just to say as much as I did. And uh, yeah, I'm going to I'm going to land there. So. Let's uh, let's wrap this up and cut our intro. Sounds good. Okay. All right. This is another long one. Apparently, we're now doing two epi- two hour episodes, and that's cool. It's a lot of editing, but I certainly enjoy it. I don't think we have any filler in this. So if you're listening, we totally appreciate it. We hope you're enjoying the full the full length of our discussion as well. And horror films are our collective nightmares. Oh God, let's see if I can put this together. What's the word where you take like a concept and you make it concrete? It's like the the example is like the White House is not like the White House anymore. It's like the symbol of government. And it's like, it starts with an I. I don't know. Um. Oh, God don't know it's a sociology term ear <laughs> oh, I need this word right now um, I can't okay um, now I lost damn train of thought what was I saying? Give me an idea. The word I was looking for is reification. Reify. Reification. Which, according to the Oxford Dictionary of Sociology, reification is the error of regarding an abstraction as a material thing and attributing causal powers to it. In other words, the fallacy of misplaced concreteness. An example would be treating a model or ideal type as if it were a description of a real individual or society. In Marxist theory, reification is linked to people's alienation from work and their treatment as objects of manipulation rather than as human beings, and was popularized by Lukacs, but the term is given a variety of meanings by different schools of Marxist thought. So in my example of the White House, the White House is an abstraction, the system of government in the United States, and treating it as a material thing and attributing causal powers to it is a fallacy because it conceals the fact that these decisions are being made by people. And that can be problematic because if we want to hold people accountable, it is potentially problematic to refer to the White House rather than, you know, this these this isn't just some thing that's deciding these things in some sort of abstract sense. Real people making real decisions that have very real impacts on millions and millions, if not billions of lives. Okay.